But I think generative AI is extremely powerful when it takes you a very long time to generate an artifact, but it only takes you a few seconds to verify how useful or correct that artifact is. Welcome to Ask More of AI, a podcast looking at the intersection of AI and business. I'm Clara Shai, CEO of Salesforce AI. I've been exploring the practical use of AI in business for years, both as an entrepreneur and a leader in the tech industry. I'm so thrilled to be sitting down with Richard Socher today. Dr. Socher invented prompt engineering and was also one of the founders of the Salesforce AI Research Group nearly a decade ago. Richard, it is so great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Clara. Great to be here. So you are clearly a brilliant, creative thinker, and you've had a very interesting story. You grew up in Dresden, Germany. You came to the U.S. initially in high school as an exchange student for 10 months in Montana. How do you think those early experiences shaped your path, and how did you end up in the field of AI? I think shaped me in the sense that I, I love living in different places in the world. I realized that um, I can be happy and uh, learn a lot of things from, from different people and different cultures and backgrounds. Um, and then the way I got into AI uh, was uh, in, in high school even, I always enjoyed math, but also English. You know, my, my native uh, tongue, uh, mother tongue is, is German. And so... Um, I enjoyed languages and I thought about, is there some way to combine these two passions? And what's interesting is that, you know, math, you feel like is the same kind of correct and logical math, even if you go light years in this direction, you know, um, but language can change. You know, just some teenager says YOLO uh, and before you know it, there's a new word in the language, right? And, uh, and so it's constantly evolving. People make it up and change it. Uh, and, and it's this very uh, amorphous, beautiful um, construct uh, that humanity uses to convey thoughts and everything. And so I wanted to combine those two and found that uh, there's a program called Linguistic Computer Science um, back uh, in Germany in Leipzig University, where I started my first two years uh, in undergrad and uh, did my bachelor's. And so that's sort of uh, my early um, foray into that. And then uh, I fell in love with statistical pattern recognition and machine learning um, during my master's. And then it was very clear to me that if you could understand statistical learning at the time really, really well, you could apply this to natural language processing, to computer vision, to biology, to medicine, and to everything else. Uh, and so to me, it was very clear I wanted to dedicate my life to making that technology work well and, and help in a lot of different use cases. And then long story short, I took those ideas and I said, well, can we apply them to natural language processing too? And, and that's sort of uh, the, the magical moment uh, for myself in, in 2010. That's incredible that your dual passion for math and language led you to the insight that words can be represented as numbers, which led you to the idea of prompt engineering. So it's been almost 10 years since you founded MetaMind. What, what are the different questions that AI researchers are asking today versus 10 years ago? Yeah, 10 years ago, the biggest difference was that we couldn't even get AI to understand the world, let alone generate uh, really powerful outputs. And so we had to first understand images. Uh, you know, ImageNet was a big part of that. Large convolutional neural networks were a big part of that. Uh, and then we could apply that to a bunch of different use cases in radiology, for instance, and pathology, counting uh, blood cells, for instance, uh, 
then we could also understand natural language better. Uh, we could classify the sentiment really well. Uh, we could uh, understand, is this a service email or a sales email or a marketing email? And which you know, department should that maybe go into? Uh, we can make a lot of predictions. So it's predictive or discriminative AI. Uh, not in the sense of discriminating people, but discriminating between like cats and dogs and an image and, and things like that. Uh, and then in the last few years, we've seen a huge uh, set of improvements in generative AI also, where not only can we understand or can AI understand uh, natural language, visual inputs and so on, but we can also generate new kinds of uh, outputs, modalities like images, uh, as well as text. And of course, text connects to thought and to thinking and to a lot of different work streams uh, in the enterprise and everywhere else. And so being able to generate language uh, is a massive unlock for AI. Uh, and it won't stop there. We can also, and it's one of the works we've done at Salesforce, like generate proteins for biology. Uh, we can uh, soon generate videos, probably six to 18 months, we'll get short videos. And then probably music will come uh, also in the coming uh, orders and, and years mostly probably held back by the copyright questions. But yeah, it, it's going to be an exciting time uh, for generative AI. So you talked about these new modalities like music and, and video. And from a research standpoint or from a compute standpoint, how is generating these different modalities different than text? So <clears throat> the biggest difference is, of course, that they're sort of continuous uh, and hence uh, also very high dimensional. But what's surprising is that we've actually been able to unify and make a lot of these things more and more similar. Uh, transformer architectures uh, also work uh, in computer vision. Uh, large uh, convolutional networks could also be used in part for, for some natural language processing. So the biggest uh, similarity on the AI side is actually that you can have these foundational models that work in multiple different modalities. Uh, and that, that's been super exciting to see. Of course, there are still some uh, differences, uh, so-called uh, diffusion models uh, that are used uh, primarily in, in generative uh, image use cases and, and not really in, in the natural language processing world. And then, of course, there's sort of the big question for applications of you know, which kinds of organizations have image data versus text data. And the truth is every single company out there uses language to communicate with their customers and to communicate internally and to talk about their vision and their products and so on. Whereas not every company out there uses computer vision uh, these days uh, in their workflows. So I think the impact on, on, of text versus images is still going to be larger. But the transformers work because at the end of the day, whether it's a text or image or video, it's ones and zeros. Mm, that's right. And it's we can actually, the biggest unlock uh, for NLP was to think of words also as just lists of numbers rather than this, these discrete entities, cat, car, and tree are all just have no connection whatsoever with one another. But we really know that cats and dogs are more similar than a cat is to a car, uh, even though in you know string distance, they're um, maybe cat and car closer to one another uh, than to dog. But really thinking of everything as a continuum has helped uh, AI and NLP a lot. And once everything is a list of numbers, neural networks can be used uh, to make predictions and understand and generate that kind of output. You've said before that transformers aren't 
brain-inspired, they're GPU hardware-inspired. Can, can you talk more about that? And, and is it the hardware that unlocked this ability for us to do unsupervised AI? Yeah, I still remember in the early days in 2010, uh, Andrew Ng's lab, we tried to make GPUs work, um, and, and it was hard. Um, there are a lot of folks hacking on that, and uh, we, we tried to get some more information from NVIDIA, and in the early days, they're like, what, what are you doing? How many GPUs are you buying? Are you gamers? Are you in graphics? And uh, it took us a while to, to convince them that this is going to be really interesting. Uh, but indeed, uh, neural networks, and this is quite technical, but Neural networks are powered uh, by large matrix multiplications. Um, uh, again, just lists of numbers and, and high dimensional spaces uh, and uh, basically, or, or yeah, matrices. And uh, basically you, as you multiply them, you want to do, you want to do that very, very fast. Uh, and it turns out uh, early GPUs uh, did that extremely fast, mostly for gaming applications, but you can use that same hardware for AI applications. And uh, because we wanted to multiply larger and larger matrices as fast as possible and CPUs weren't as good for that. Uh, we kept going more and more into that direction and transformers are highly inspired uh, by the fact of uh, being able to paralyze on current GPU hardware. And uh, you could argue that uh, most of the architectures that we're exploring uh, is in, in that the fashion we're doing that is similar to looking for the keys only under the street lamps. Now, these are pretty large lamps. Everything is, you know, can be described as a list of numbers. Everything can be described in a neural network. It almost doesn't matter maybe as much, but we are highly constraining ourselves to only looking for AI models that can be run currently on GPUs uh, and very fast matrix multiplications. It's so interesting, right? I mean, we always thought software and hardware people, it was different sets of, of people. And now software people have to become hardware people and hardware people are trying to become software people. Um, so you mentioned NVIDIA, and that, that's fascinating that, that maybe when you started working with them, when you were getting your PhD, they didn't even yet understand the AI potential of their GPUs, which they had created for gaming. Certainly they've, they've caught on uh, now and the rest of the world has caught on. Of course, they're not the only ones who are racing to build more GPUs. There's a shortage out there. Every chip company is doing the same thing. Even software companies, hyperscalers, they're building their own hardware. How do you see that evolving? And, and do I mean, given that this, a lot of this is hardware driven, do you see different types of AI models coming to the forefront as, as the hardware evolves? Yeah, it's hard to um, under or uh, overestimate how impactful NVIDIA has been to its resurgence and, and, and boom in AI. Uh, really, we all are using NVIDIA GPUs uh, for pretty much all our workflows. And this is expanding uh, the use cases and the support uh, of, of AI. So they're you know, fully activated and, and actually a, a great partner for, for a lot of AI researchers, organizations, and, and uh, practitioners. So I don't currently see a whole lot of new hardware uh, displacing NVIDIA GPUs anytime soon. There's also been talk about doing the, the LLM compute on the edge. How close are we to that, in your opinion? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, sort of research philosophy. I think I'm uh, personally a little bit more excited about doing things that have not been possible and try to have as few restrictions on those things as possible. Uh, so uh, concretely, for instance, if you try to have an AI to write you a poem or have a full conversation with, that's an incredibly hard problem to solve. 
And so uh, at first, it makes most sense to just un in an unrestricted fashion, try to solve that problem. And once you have solved it, then you can add restrictions. Maybe you want to have federated learning where some different partners can, you know, collect and never see each other's data, but still train a model together. Or you can say, I want it to be completely privacy preserving and uh, never be able to learn like a social security number uh, and something. Or you can say, I want it on the edge in much smaller compute um, and, then, and then run that. And my hunch is that usually will happen quite naturally. Once you show something is possible, people will keep modifying it and improving it uh, and, and you see this with the open source large language models now, folks are quantizing it, finding really clever hacks, sometimes just very obscure uh, compiler flags and things like that uh, to make it work uh, eventually on your phone. Uh, and, you know, we will realize, I think, um, in the next few years, uh, what sort of the minimum number uh, of, of parameters will be to to do certain use cases. It's so funny. We were just talking about what's the minimum number of parameters we can use in a model. And just a few months ago, I think it was a, a race to see who can get who could get the most number of parameters and just how quickly that's all changing. Um, let's switch gears. I mean, your current company, u.com, is a multimodal conversational AI approach to search. You are taking on Google. That is a tall order. How did you come up with the idea and what's your unique approach? Yeah, uh, I've been working in deep learning for natural language processing for, for over a decade. And the biggest application of NLP is in search. It's in answering people's questions, uh, giving them useful answers that are actionable and helpful uh, and help them learn things. And it's such an exciting and interesting application of all of these uh, deep learning techniques that we've developed, me and, and many others. Uh, and so I thought it's kind of crazy that after 20 years, we still, despite seeing all of these improvements, have our main search experience be a list of blue links. Uh, and we could clearly do better. And so we started U.com in 2020. This was two years after uh, Brian McCann uh, and I had invented prompt engineering, uh, which is basically the idea that you can have a single model and then keep asking it different kinds of questions uh, in order to get different answers, but it's all trained in one joint large model. Uh, this is a paper that you know OpenAI had cited uh, back in the day and was very influential uh, for some of their thinking on GPT-1 and 2. Uh, and so we saw the writing on the wall and, and we we're you know, ourselves there um, and, and trying to make it happen. So you came up with the concept for prompt engineering. I mean, it's a big idea and it's really the underpinning of so much of what we're seeing now with generative AI. What inspired you to come up with that and, and how'd you do it? Yeah, um, it's it's actually been a long dream of mine to uh, think about uh, a single model for, for all of NLP and really eventually all of AI. Um, we had uh, a paper called GLOVE, uh, Global Vectors uh, in 2014 that uh, set the foundation of thinking of words as lists of numbers. Uh, and then uh, we were able to pre-train these word vectors in uh, a fashion that allowed us to use a ton of data from the internet. We tried to get as much data as we could with Common Crawl and other publicly available data sets from the internet. And that allowed us to get uh, words to have much better and uh, similarity measures. So we would know that cat and dogs are more, you know, cats and dogs are more similar 
Uh, and you have these uh, kind of interesting patterns where you could take the vector of king, add the vector uh, of woman, and subtract the vector of man, and then you get to queen. So king minus man plus woman goes to queen. Turn it into a math equation. <laughs> That's right. Turn turn language and semantics and world knowledge into a math equation. And so so that was kind of my uh, my first spark where I said, wow, it's amazing. Now we take these word vectors and we can apply them on sentiment analysis for machine translation. Uh, for information extraction, for summarization, and all of these different tasks. We all want to use these same word vectors and keep uh, using them for different things. But then you realize, well, after the word vectors, you now want to understand the whole sentence, not in isolation each word, but in their context. And then, so so that's when we developed Cove, contextual vectors, um, which then became uh, Elmo and then Bert in quick succession and inspired that line of research. And we said, okay, great, now we have a pre-trained encoder. So that's sort of the, again, discriminative part of AI where we understand everything and we're sharing that across all these different tasks. Again, translation and summarization and sentiment analysis. But then we thought, well, ultimately we also want the output to be shared so we can have a single model and then have the whole world in the future kind of act propagate into this model make it better together and then consecutively train uh, in, in a fashion that is more cumulative rather than restarting every AI project from scratch. Uh, and that's kind of what led us uh, to DECA NLP, a single model for all the 10 different tasks. But then you realize if you want to pre-train and share the entire neural network architecture, you really have to uh, make the input um, not just be about the context, but also the task that you ask in the model. And that, that was sort of the main idea. To have one pre-trained large model, you need to make the task be just another input to the model. And the way we did this is in a natural language question. What is the translation? What is the sentiment of the sentence? Uh, who is the president in this paragraph? Uh, and, and that essentially uh, became prompt engineering and having a single model. But uh, the, the big change, of course, was to also include language modeling, um, which was a task that was actually on our backlog to implement in the next iteration. Uh, but an open AI did this right away. Uh, and then the language modeling objective uh, together with this idea of adding the task as just another input and question to the same model that led uh, to, to ChatGPT now. What a game-changing moment for everyone. <laughs> So some of these large language models, they, they struggle with outputs in, in non-English languages. Is that a function of the training set primarily being in English? Most, most of the internet is in English. Or are there structural reasons about how certain languages are, are set up? It's actually mostly a training data uh, question and not having enough training data of other languages. Uh, what's interesting is these models think of spaces uh, between words and long words and long sentences, uh, to them, it's all just a sequence of what we call byte pair encodings. Um, uh, basically, these models don't even have a full conception of this is a word. It's just like, oh, like uh, um, catnip might be C-A-T-N-I-P or something like that. Uh, or uh, Richard might be rich, A-R, and then D. It's just tokens. It's just exactly. It's yeah. tokens, byte pair encodings. And so, uh, whether that's like Finnish or German, where you have super long words, uh, or it's just longer sentences, uh, to the model, it doesn't make a difference. But having enough training data in those languages, that is the biggest uh, delta. And that's where, you know, I think we need to work hard 
to bridge the gap and include a lot of other languages so that those languages can participate in, in this new future. So U.com is a consumer search engine powered by LLMs. When you were at Salesforce, of course, you were in the enterprise space. What are the different ways that one would approach generative AI for consumers versus enterprise? Yeah, I think there's, uh, in some ways, consumer moves uh, very quickly um, and the bar is, is high in both. Um, it used to be that uh, sort of common um, mantra is ship a consumer product as quickly as you can, get an MVP out, and then iterate. And, and people would say, if you're not embarrassed by your first product, you, know, you ship too late. <laughs> um, I, but it's also now, I think, more and more um, becoming clear that the bar for consumer products is getting higher and higher as well. And so they're merging in that sense to, to enterprise. Um, now, in enterprise, of course, uh, you have an even higher bar uh, in, in some cases, right, in the medical space, in the legal space, um, you definitely have to be correct. And so uh, where they actually also merge and are surprisingly, again, similar is in uh, the fact that these LMs need often a retrieval backend. You can think of large language models almost more as a reasoning engine, but the way they store facts is very fuzzy. It's a little bit like a forgetful, uh, smart, but somewhat forgetful person. Um, who gets some of the details wrong, you know, when your uncle tells the story, but, you know, he fudges with the um, details a little bit uh, from 20 years ago and uh, maybe uh, amplifies uh, some of uh, his heroic deeds or something. Like, that. that's sort of uh, how we can think about these LMs. And so it's very helpful if you have a retrieval backend, a search backend, and this is something we've built at U.com uh, over the last uh, almost year now, and are getting better and better in bringing in facts into such an LM. And of course, the retrieval is across both keyword search as well as vectors. What What's the state of the art when it comes to vectorization and embeddings? Yeah, there's uh, a lot of different uh, schools of thought there. Uh, usually when you want to embed a ton of different uh, paragraphs or sentences uh, and documents, you want to use an open source model because it can get very expensive if you do that on your entire corpus. Uh, and then you have different kinds of uh, vector data databases. There are also open source models uh, like Chroma, uh, which we've also invested in. Um, there's some uh, companies like Pinecone um, that offer these managed services as well. Uh, and I think we'll see a lot more exciting movements in that space and uh, working on models uh, for you know, getting vector databases of many billions uh, of, of vectors in there, because that's ultimately what we'd want. Uh, ideally, we vectorize the entire world uh, and starting with the internet. It's so it's happening so fast. So there have been all these developments in retrieval augmentation, semantic search. It's gotten so good to the point where a lot of what AI researchers even a few months ago thought was only achievable through training or fine-tuning a custom model. Now you can achieve with with a, a regular with with any model just using retrieval augmentation. What what do you think is the space that's left where it's essential to have a custom model? Yeah, it's an interesting question. My hunch is uh, open source models and custom models uh, and, and organizations tuning their own models will become more and more common. Um, and indeed, uh, even the best models like GPT-4, which is actually an option uh, in our pro subscription service inside U.com, uh, even the best models benefit uh, from having this retrieval 
uh, augmented backend, uh, where essentially we gave uh, GPT-4 uh, last year in December, well, like our own model and, and other models, but now also GPT-4 last, since last month, um, access to the internet. Uh, and that way, these models are much more factual. They can be actually up to date. You can ask about recent events and things like that, uh, and they can cite their sources. And this is actually a pretty important aspect of generative AI. I think at a high level uh, model that I, I came up with is that I think generative AI is extremely powerful when it takes you a very long time to generate an artifact, but it only takes you a few seconds to verify how useful or correct that artifact is. So for instance, uh, you can quickly um, look at an image and see if it looks good or not, but it would take you like an hour to actually draw or create that image or illustration. So that's a perfect use case. But in, in a natural language, if it you know, writes you this like five page article um, or even five paragraph article, but now it takes you uh, a super long time to verify every single fact in it, then it becomes less and less useful. And so to make uh, LMs more useful for search and to be more trustworthy, we need to push uh, more and more citations uh, and fact connection to, to real facts that can be quickly verified uh, into these models. And that's what we've been doing. And actually, have been getting a lot of interest from other companies also to get access uh, to this technology that we've built. Maybe we can call that searcher's ratio of how much time it takes to review versus <laughs> to generate as, as a new I'll metric. I, that's a good idea. Yeah. Now, of course, tuning a model and using RAG are not mutually exclusive. They can really enhance each other. I think the challenge, though, that a lot of companies face, especially if they're outside of the Fortune 500, Fortune 100, is that they don't have a huge team of data scientists that can focus on training and tuning their own model. And so the question is, you know, is is RAG on its own, will that get you 80%, 90%? When do you actually really need your own custom model? I think a lot of organizations probably don't need uh, their own models. Uh, I think it often uh, boils down to privacy uh, restrictions uh, and uh, wanting to not have anything in your organization leave that organization uh, for you know, competitive reasons and otherwise. Um, and, and then there are probably more and more uh, custom situations where uh, you don't want the model to be able to talk about anything, right? Because otherwise, you know, you try to have this specific customer support uh, situation and before you know it, people try to become, you know, uh, uh, girlfriend, boyfriends uh, with your with your service bot and you're like, ah, oh, it's not the best use of our compute resources. Uh, or you know, they have a therapy session and really just wanted to help them like log back into their account or uh, do uh, some very specific task around their uh, account. Okay, so most companies, the vast majority, if not all large enterprises, Going into this whole generative AI era, they, they already have many classical AI models. How do you see these traditional models fitting in with the new models? That's a good question. I think it really depends on, on the company. It's very hard to have a, a general answer here. I think a lot of the traditional models have been making predictions. Uh, and my hunch is it will be very powerful to be able to connect those predictions into an LM. I don't think an LM will replace uh, a credit score or um, whether you know this particular knowledge-based article uh, might be useful. I think that's all content uh, and retrieval mechanisms 
and uh, sub-decisions that could feed into an LM to help you then reason uh, more holistically around uh, and over and across your business. So you would advise these companies to perhaps create a plugin for each of their existing classical models? I think it'll be powerful to allow LMs to basically get access to these other models outputs so they can then reason over them and provide even more useful answers uh, at the very highest level. Like even a CEO can then ask questions and ask like, oh, what's my predictive forecast, right? And Salesforce, we had trained a lot of forecasting models too. It's like how many, you know, like uh, of your geos will hit their quota and, and things like that. And these forecasting models are very powerful. They're already very specialized and trained for organizations. And it's unlikely an LM will do any better than those because LMs haven't been that great uh, for sequential financial data and then forecasting and things like that. They're much better for natural language uh, and sort of uh, sequences of, of actions and, and things like that. Uh, and so I think it will be a great way to combine past things um, into, into these LMs. Yeah. And of course, this is exactly what, what Salesforce and, and others are doing with our LLM agents, You know, being able to use a natural language querying um, interface to be able to access classical models and really any, any service that a company might have as part of their software stack. Really exciting stuff. Uh, so there's also been a shift, though, where it's not just complementary, there's also a shift in how AI is approached versus even 24 months ago. What are some of the things that traditional AI researchers and data scientists need to unlearn for this new era? That's a good one. I think the biggest uh, interesting shift has been uh, in uh, traditional AI, we used to think of train development and test sets, and we could very quickly iterate uh, on a specific problem. We tune the algorithm, we add some new training data, we test it very quickly on our development set and then know if it works better or not. And that has actually, in some ways, regressed. Now we're doing, a, we're changing the prompt and no one currently has a really good way of saying, oh, this, I changed the prompt. I asked to be a helpful uh, and professional agent or be a kind, professional and friendly agent. And like, how much has that now improved if we changed the prompt from this to that? But the biggest thing is to think not having to train as much or not having to have as much training data, but actually being able to get away with less training data if you can phrase it as an LM-like problem. And then the LM can very quickly get you to an 80% solution. You can test it out with customers, can try uh, to iterate and collect more training data in that process, maybe have you know some things still done with humans, some of an LM. And then over time, the LM can learn more and more and get to you know 95 plus percent, and then be really fully run uh, some process uh, automatically. I think that's that's kind of the power that has changed uh, from these large pre-trained uh, language models compared to having to start completely from scratch uh, with nothing in the past. It really is counterintuitive with with training. It might less is more these days, and it really also speaks to the power of relying on retrieval augmentation versus just training and tuning with more data. What advice would you have? I don't know if you have kids, but for, for any parents out there, how should we think about educating our kids for this world? I think that would be a more and more important question. I mean, it's always been important uh, and, and education is something like I'm very passionate about too. I think uh, we need to make sure our kids learn to learn still. 
Um, so some parts of education will stay the same, uh, trying to memorize some things, because if you always have to look it up at every given moment, it's hard to creatively really think about uh, a new era area. Uh, they will still continue to need to know math um, to understand how machines that are more and more uh, um, impacting their lives uh, work. Um, and they need to learn how to program. I think a very clear actionable thing right now is to make sure that every high schooler learns how to program uh, in some simple language like Python, at least. Uh, and whether you go into law or medicine, it will be helpful to know how to program. I thought that um, uh, the large language model can program for you. It can, but will it do it perfectly every time? Will it give you the optimal code? Uh, and if there's a bug and you get an error message now, do you know how to fix it after? I, I think we'll still uh, need to learn how to code. We don't need to do it in assembler anymore or C or C++. A lot of people can be very productive and build amazing things in higher level programming languages, but it's still very helpful to know how to program and, and just to understand how that works. And so I think some of the foundational things are going to stay physics, uh, biology, chemistry. I think there will be lots of exciting uh, novel breakthroughs in those fields as well, especially once they really embrace uh, AI, likewise economics, um, and then protein engineering and all these applications. So my hope is uh, we teach uh, kids still how to learn a lot of different things very quickly, how to be excited and interested in new things, uh, then some solid uh, STEM base, um, and then eventually make sure still that they they have uh, you know human values of empathy and, and kindness uh, to each other. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. And thank you again for the incredible AI foundation that you helped put in place here at Salesforce. Thanks, Claire. It's really fun chatting. That's all for this session of Ask More of AI, the podcast at the intersection of AI and business. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Clara Shai.